This is our Suburb Trends report for September 2023 and we'll be looking at what property investors need to know when they're looking at investing across the country. In this episode, we'll be discussing the listings landscape. It seems that property listings are generally on the rise, finally, although not everywhere. So we'll be looking at areas where stock levels are expected to stay low and why. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. This month, we've asked Kent to identify the tightest markets across Australia, those areas where listings are tipped to fall, even though we're heading into spring. Now, Kent, can you kick us off briefly by explaining how you've tackled this challenge? Yes, I've used my favorite statistical area three, SA3 data. What I've done is I've created a model using my favorite new best friend called ChatGPT, Code Interpreter, and built a uh, model. Um, so it's effectively a, a neural network style model. It's a gradient booster is for the nerds out there. Built one model forecasting mm-hmm. houses three months into the future, another model forecasting units into the future based on average listings per month gave it uh, two years of data up until three months ago and then trained the model and then gave it data up till now and then that in theory gives you a prediction three months out and the final result was actually interesting the model has come back saying or forecasting a overall three percent drop in listings across the board So that flies in the face of some of the stories that we've all been reading that listings volumes are surging. I'm currently not seeing that, but I'll choose my words carefully because that's what you have to do in this space. Other people might be measuring things slightly different or looking at it differently, and I need to give them some respect and understand what they're doing first. But I'm not seeing it at this stage. Now, what am I measuring? I'm measuring average listings. They might be measuring new listings and then looking at the fresh stuff, only looking at the fresh stuff. I'm looking at the average listing. So we're slightly, you know, maybe a little bit apples, oranges, but they are very correlated, obviously. So there might be some uh, difference in the way we are approaching it. That said, I still stand by it that I don't see a surge in listings. So you're talking about listings, not just new listings, but listings on the market, right? And how does that... Total listings, total average. Because, hmm. I mean, when you were looking at... I was looking at uh, the CoreLogic monthly sort of numbers and, you know, there was a lot of media hype about a month ago that there's all these new listings unseasonally, you know, hitting the market, sign that everyone's distressed, there's going to be this you know, doomsday scenario where listings are going to go through the roof. and um, But then when you look at the CoreLogic data for this month, the total listings has sort of been tracking down still. So it's like, the, oh, yeah, there's been an increase in listings, but the absorption rate is actually still taking on those listings. We're still buying them. Um, and total listings is still been going down. So it's, it's sort of, is that the number you're more looking at, uh, you know, your total listings, basically, the average there and saying, well, yeah, I mean, there might be some new listings coming on, but we're buying them faster than they're coming on still. Well, the reason why I like to look at average listings is it's one half of the measure of inventory. So I look at average sales per month and average listings per month at any given time, and then that gives you your inventory measure. Now, the beauty then of uh, measuring those two independently is you can do forecasting with both. So typically, if we're looking at sales, you never really know how many properties are going to sell until a couple of months down the track, right? So ultimately, you're doing some, you're doing some argy-bargy with your modelling to forecast what it will be today or next month to give you your inventory metrics. So that's how I approach it. So I'm, I'm, I'm less interested in new listings 
because of that reason, I'm most interested in average. So, but also you've got days on market because that's a factor in there as well, isn't it? Because one of the things, you know, if you look at an SQL um, website, um, there's that total listings graph. So you can look at them for individual suburbs. You can look at them for regions. And what I love about that website is that, well, first of all, you can break it down. You can look at either houses and units or you can look at uh, a time sequence. So last 30, 30 days, uh, 60 days, 90 days, and so on, I think up to 180 days. And you can really clearly see when uh, markets are in a downward cycle that you can see those those longer or the listings that have been on the market for a long time you can see that bottom section swell up and then you can see in a in a faster market where everything's selling that obviously the total days on market would have to be reducing as well because those uh, older listings those numbers you know you can see it very clearly in the bar graph that they go down so I guess that's all part of the average listings as well, isn't it? Because average listings is going to inflate uh, when you've got properties sitting on the market for longer. Uh, yes. Um, the concern I've got specifically with days on market, I don't. I use it, but I, I don't rely on it a lot for the aggregate stuff especially. Um, the reason being is uh, when you're aggregating up sales volumes and listings average volumes uh, you don't really need to worry about the distributions being aligned and what i mean by that let me explain you might have some suburbs with really expensive houses with longer natural organic days on market right they, they take longer or you go to a regional area regional areas where properties can take 50 days plus as normal just normal so me bringing together suburbs that take 50 60 days normally with an area like coffs harbour metro that might be 30 to 40 days normal blending those two together to give you a broader sa3 or sa4 doesn't really work but blending the the metrics for inventory together and aggregating the suburbs does work a lot better so i'm not, I, that's why i do things slightly differently because i'm looking at it from a total nerd perspective of distributions oh but not only that but what you're you, what you've just said is that local different local areas have different factors that need to be taken into consideration and anybody without your depth of experience in this industry um wouldn't know that you know and that's that's one of the problems we're just using They've just tuned in. They now know. Well, they do now if they listen to this. Well, all I'm all I'm talking about is that's that's the danger. We're just using data without the nuance. Understand the nuance. So, thank you for explaining that. Anyway, okay. So, shall we go through? Because what you've done, you've basically put a the the, the top ten or do we call it the top ten or bottom ten of average or top ten or bottom ten? How we <laughs> whatever the areas that we see that are, are forecast to drop. Yeah, dropping the forecast to drop the most. With, with it. Yeah, and and it's and so this is modelled. So you know, it, forecasting's always got risks attached to it. So I'll throw throw in those weasel words and disclaimers. But uh, yeah, it does look like these are some areas that are, are declining. Well, you have to, you have to. You're a, if you're a statistician, you can't go in go in all, you know, ballsy and making big bold statements as if everything's. Yeah, I know, but as everything's fact. But, but what you are doing, you're only talking about the next three months, that's for starters, and you are giving us all the disclaimers. But what we will do is hold you to accountable, we'll hold ChatGPT accountable uh, in the next full forecast report. How does that make you feel better? Yeah, that's good, that's good. So <laughs> um, so let's, like, we, we can drill in, we can talk about some areas, because I think you, you highlighted a few locations you wanted to drill into to start with, right? So, so we could start with maybe some Melbourne spots. So let's okay. pick on the first one, Keylor. That's in in uh, Melbourne Northwest. Actually, quite a couple of these are in uh, Melbourne Northwest. Tullamarine Broadmeadows is another one. So these are SA threes. So a um, couple of key things. So I'll just talk broadly about these markets. Um, uh, Keylor, as of July, the full month of July, typically around 113 average listings versus Tullamarine Broadmeadow, uh, 698. So significantly larger market in that Tullamarine Broadmeadows. Price-wise, Keylor, 980, big high price. Tullamarine Broadmeadow, 655 is the median there. Now, 
Both of those have fallen in the last three months by about 2%. So it's interesting. So this decline in listings volumes may start to uh, flatten that loss of price out, if you know what I mean. So it might stem some of that fall. Most of the areas that we're looking at today that are actually a bit of a balance. If I look at their price change in the last three months, it's even split between some going up in the last three months and some going down. So this is an example of a couple that have gone down in price. So in terms of uh, inventory levels as well, where are they at? Their key laws at 2.13, but Tullamarine Broadband is a bit higher, 4.86. So that's the, um, the, the, the data on that. Now we need to move over to the forecast. That's 4.86 months worth of inventory. Yes, correct. So it's a pretty, pretty high. I mean, I guess for our listeners here, it's, it's if 4.8 months of inventory that if the average number of sales per month, you know, happened, it would take five months basically to clean out what's currently on the market, um, which is quite a lot, right? So you need either, if new listings come on, um, you've already got five months of choice, right, on, in the market, right? So as a buyer, you're not feeling very nervous, you're not feeling very worried when you've got lots of choice. If inventory is like one month, right, um, then you know that, you know, there's not much coming on this month and everyone's buying and it's going to get really tight. So that's sort of the, you know, when you say kilo, I think you said it's two or three versus four or five. That's a that's quite a lot. It is quite big. And, and the issue is we've got areas have had such low inventory now for the last few years, the last couple of years, that all, all bets are off with some of the metrics that I was using three or four years ago because we used to say three or four was normal. Well, now we're kind of saying two or three is normal. So um, I'd be more interested in the shifts in inventory than what it is currently today. I think that the 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 month-on-month change in inventory or the three-month change in inventory is really important. Because we also have a situation, and see, this is why I love to dig beneath the numbers a bit to understand, you know, what's been happening in that marketplace because the reasons for a fall in listings can be varied. Um, For example, if one of those areas is an area where there's been a lot of, you know, relatively recent house and land packages where a lot of first home buyers potentially bought in in 2021 and they're under the most amount of pressure Um, and we've been talking about the mortgage cliff and talking about distressed sales and all that sort of stuff, um, which uh, in terms of aggregated data has not been anywhere near as bad as it's been sort of threatened or or forewarned in in various quarters. However, in certain locations, it has been. And those sort of um, particularly vulnerable buyers who or owners who have bought at the peak and then suffered, you know, 2022 falls and in the interest rate rises, you know, there's been a bit of a bit of knee jerking and a bit of forced forced selling. So some of it may not have been forced, but some of it emotionally forced, shall we say. So would you suggest in some areas that that is tapering off? That has been um, that is uh, that has actually inflated listings in recent times, and now that's tapering off. Or would you say that there are other causes? Oh, um, look, I, I would argue that there's still some forced sales flowing through, but nowhere near the magnitude that we expected or some of the um, uh, reports had, had forecast. So I think people are hanging on. And uh, obviously, uh, if you know how bad the housing crisis is, obviously, you know, people don't want to leave the house, so they'll just do everything they can to bat, you know, batten down the hatches. But the, the cost of living crisis is probably hitting hard, hardest right now than it's ever hit. So it's hard. Uh, I'm not too sure. I, I, honestly, I, I don't know. Um, the areas that we've always expected this to be worse are those that bought at the peak and are in those high mortgage belt areas. Yeah. But if we do dig into into a bit of that background of each of these areas, I'm, I'm sure there's a different story to be told. Uh, look, there always is because, you know, we're saying so many of these areas, um, you, you've got areas that have very very low percentages of of mortgages and or if they they do have mortgages a lot of them are very small mortgages so um, we've seen a bit of movement in markets where there's high rental tenure and a few uh, landlords have decided to exit 
Um, I think a lot of that's um, that they're already stressed anyway and they're just looking for an excuse. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are doing it tough with cash flow as as landlords and have, have been exiting of late as well. So I'd probably say that's been a bigger driver of late than than the stressed sales or distressed mortgage sales. Um, so, yeah, so hopefully that summed it up. I've got I've got a really interesting bit of data. I, I know, it's not on our agenda, but I, I looked up since the war, since 1945 what the building completion rate was as a percentage of housing stock and then in five-year gaps. And I've also done the same thing for our mortgage interest rates. And the last 10 years have been record-setting for all the wrong reasons in terms of putting upward pressure on prices. We've never seen such low levels of properties being built proportionate to housing stock, and we've never seen such low interest rates. So we've had a a market where everything has been propping up and pushing and inflating prices beyond anything we've seen since 1945. So I, sorry that wasn't on the script, but... No, it's interesting. It's interesting because nothing's normal. Nothing we're looking at is normal. You'd have to argue that an underbuilding is <laughs> going to continue, right? Like borrowing capacity issues, builder issues, material issues. And I know the government wants to build $1.2 million, uh, million homes, but the reality is like when, you know, the approvals are all-time lows. So over the next five years, you know, developers aren't risk on, they're risk off at the moment. So, you know, you'd have to argue at least for the rest of this decade probably that we're going to be significantly underbuilding again. Prefab. I think we've covered that many times. The only answer I've got is prefab and lots of it. The Nissan Hunt. <laughs> well, ha having said that, though, our governments uh, across the board have reduced their spending in the social housing and community housing sector for decades now. And so that's something that is certainly changing. And we're going to have um, Michelle Adair come back on very soon and talk to us about that as well. Um, and so that's so that you don't have to worry about developers when it's government money, you know. I've only got one. I'm yeah, one trick pony for me. It's the only solution is a massive injection of public housing, and I'm mm. not I'm not talking rounding you rounding errors numbers. I'm talking big numbers to make up for all the years that forty years. The the sole responsibility for providing rental stock in this country has been provided by individual investors practically uh, for many, many years now, and that is going to have to change because obviously it's a broken system. And, and Chris, you, you know, this is your domain in the finance space. You know, talk to any property developer or builder. The finance constraints have been huge. So, you know, yes, we've got labour and labour and cost constraints, but the biggest constraint has been financing for new builds. Yeah, and I think a lot of investors aren't going to buy the new builds. I think the governments, you know, want to build 1.2, but the reality is the investors going to buy the new builds. I just don't think they're going to fall for it like they have in the past. I, I think that they're going to be a bit more savvy. They know about the building issues. They they want to play in the established market. Um, they want to go regional and they want to do buy established. There's enough property people out there, you know, trying to get their money that don't want to push them down new. Um, and so I just don't think they're going to get the investors for it. And I don't think investors are going to sign up to it under 6% interest rates. So I think investors will come back to the market. Like I was just looking here at CoreLogic, you know, looking at mortgage rates. And so back in 2011, you know, the RBA was at 4.75 and then it started to really drop, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014, 15, 2015, 16, the RBA rate was all dropping. That's when investor participation went through the roof. So, you know, investors, I think, will come back to the market when there's lots of rate cuts, um, which isn't great for prices, right? So, um, and yeah, and they're going to be competing with home buyers as well. So, yeah, I, I don't think you're going to see investors flooding into the market in the next few years if rates stay high. Well, not only that, but I mean, there's quite a lot of negative um, sort of sentiment around investors at the moment and quite a lot of uncertainty around how yeah, individual sure. state governments are approaching um you know their tenancy um legislation and and you know we're all for fairness and and 
uh, good legislation here, but you know, it's it's sort of like the political will is is around making it sound like you're just very pro renters and very and not so pro investors, sort of forgetting the fact that investors, without investors, you've got nothing to rent. So, you know, I guess a lot of investors are sitting a bit shy at the moment thinking, oh, is this an environment I really want to buy into? Apart from the cost and apart from the fact that interest rates are high and now prices are rising again in quite a lot of areas, you know, it's like, oh, hang on a minute, they might change, they might legislate to to make things uh, unpalatable. And, you know, we've got legislation on the, on, you know, Victoria is uh, talking about quite some pretty sort of not very attractive to investors or not for investor favorable uh legislation queensland's tried a number of times um you know i don't think this is necessarily going to go off the table and you got the greens you know yelling out that they want a two-year rent cap which we can argue um about on another podcast i think and we'd like to have a debate on that uh as to you know what that could potentially do if they i mean i don't think they're going to get that through somehow but um you know what I mean? So there, there's quite a lot of negativity around the um, – from a landlord's point of view or from a potential investor's point of view, you're thinking, oh, I don't want to risk that. I don't want to put myself in an environment where I might have these controls forced upon me that I have no say over, you know? So – Well, but at the end of the day, supply. We need supply. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And and so you can – there's all these arguments out there about, um, oh, you know, you're making it hard for investors. And you go, well – Investors aren't building the properties, they're just buying what's out there. So, you know, this argument doesn't even help supply really, but it does take properties out of the rental pool if investors are selling out and they're not selling to other investors. Well, and, and then then the, the the other flawed argument is uh, if, if investors pull out, prices go down, that's a good thing. I then counter by saying, is the person that's currently renting that property that's now being listed for sale in a position to buy that property if it drops by what 10% does that, how far does it have to drop in price to be affordable to that person who's currently renting it and odds are 9 out of 10 9 out of 10 are not going to be able to afford to buy if they're trapped in that rental correct but also i know that it's it's um you know we look back to 2016 and that and that that property boom was fueled by investors. But if you get down to an individual property level, and that's just because there were more players in the market, right? But if you get down to individual property level, the investor is unlikely to be the highest bidder over an owner occupier. Well, that's that that's so. My point is, that it's a flawed argument. To say you know, prices would have to come down by fifty or sixty percent to be affordable to the, the the largest part of the rentals market. So. The argument really is now, sadly, we've got this two-tier society and we need to fix it or remedy as it as best we can with a massive injection of public housing. I can't see any other option. So um, nimbyism is has to end. Yeah, it's funny. Scott Keck, very well known. Charter Keck Kramer. Um, so um, we've asked him to come on the podcast. He said he's coming on, but he's a super busy guy. We've actually had um, Richard from the team on um, and he, he came up with a... A really good idea. I'll, I'll say that I also had the idea in my head. Um, whereas you know you've got you know millions of spare bedrooms, but you know as a as a homeowner, you know as soon as you know tax that you're going to have to pay tax on the rent and it's going to affect your capital gains, you're disincentivized to rent out any space, whether it's a granny flat, whether it's bedrooms downstairs. Um, you know you're more incentivized to bypass the government and try to play on a cash economy um, because. You know, you, you got a mortgage, you want to help people with their mortgages, they should just be able to rent out the room, but it's just not that practically available. And I think his key thing that made it a really good idea is that, you know, there's for a three-year period, you can do it and it doesn't affect anything. Um, and, you know, that would just give us a short-term, immediate, available supply of housing. And I think that was... Yeah, because long term, it probably maybe they don't really want to do it long term, right? Maybe there's they want to get some tax, and maybe they, it's there's reasons there. But at least try it for three years. And I thought that was a really good idea. And you know, if you're trying to solve the rental crisis, why aren't we considering? Oh, have you seen? You look at some of the SA one data that's got the number of people per dwelling, the average persons per dwelling, or you know the number of persons per bedroom. But the persons per dwelling, it's it just tells you the answer. There's vacant bedrooms everywhere. And you know, what we've got to do is kind of maybe look at five bedrooms per SA1. <laughs> we've got, there's 250,000. Boom. 
Yeah, I, I read somewhere it was 14 million empty bedrooms in this country. How many empty bedrooms have you got in your house, Kent? How, uh, how many empty bedrooms have you got in your house? One. <laughs> how many it's you a got, funny Chris? question, to be honest, because we all sleep in the same room. Um, even though there's, there's, um, so there's, there's four <laughs> of us, uh, you know, we've got a three and a one-year-old. We, we, we like to live as a close family, um, even though they probably should be in their own bedrooms. Um, Cubs. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so if you, if you technically, they're all in our bedroom and the cats are in there too. So uh, we've probably got three spare bedrooms. <laughs> so you got you got one. Normally you would think you got one. And I've got one. So between right. the three of us here, we've all got one bedroom go. spare. Put your hand up if you're going to rent it out, though, if um, if the this this is comes up. <laughs> hey, I might put the house up on Airbnb. So, so Airbnb doesn't make sense either because, like, when we went away to Fiji, if I put that on, I've got to pay tax on that money um, and I'm going to fit my CGT and it's a nightmare admin-wise. But if I could use Airbnb for two weeks without having to worry about the tax on it, I'd mo more likely use mm. it, absolutely. Um, secondly, I mean, some houses have got like granny flats and they're ready to go, right, or, you know, self-contained and they're more than happy to have, um, you know, a, a rent a room out so i do think it's there is a lot of rooms there it's just not everyone would obviously sign up to it but i do think even just for short-term emergency accommodation between renting like if you're able to offer that and especially under high mortgage rates when rates are you know two percent like you're not that worried about your mortgage but when rates are six percent an extra few hundred dollars a week is the difference between having to sell your house or not so um, I think it's a timely thing there. But as per his article, his post, he was talking about aged people, a lot of people living by themselves in three-bedroom homes who are in their 70s and 80s and 90s, very large. I mean, there could there could be a matchmaking service there, you know, to help them out a bit too, you know, like, you know, slightly discounted rent. It, it was a really sensible post. Let's get back to um, the topic at hand here, which is our listings. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about the value of empty rooms. <laughs> I um I was scrambling while we were talking just to get the different sprit worksheet up. Um, Telemarine Broadmeadows, I'm forecasting 11% drop in the next three months with the model, mm -hmm. and Keylor is a minus 9%. Right. But then you look at Monash is on the list as well, right? So you've got um, suburbs like Glen Waverley, Mount Waverley, Oakley, Willis Hill, Notting Hill. It is a little bit expensive. So that's a total different demographic, isn't it? And so this is where I think it's interesting to contrast some of these pockets to say that the reasons for though, I mean, what what's the change there? Um, uh, and like but the potential reasons for that projected fall in listings, I'm, I imagine will be different. Yeah, that's. I'm not really well equipped to give you the answer on the reasons. I I've just modelled the data with what I can see, and you know it looks at a whole range of different measures. So yeah, I, I don't. I can't really put my hand on my heart and tell you why uh, they're dropping. But you know, there's some anecdotal things that I'd probably argue that if if somebody can't find an alternative property to buy, they will hold. And there's this chronic supply, as I said, going back to 1945, we've never seen such a period where so few new housing and new stock is coming on, on online. So I'm probably going to point to that as the number one uh, issue is that there's such a chronic shortage um, of, of options for somebody. So I'm just looking at it now. So we've got between 20, not 2020 and 2024, the forecast here is about 3% new stock. For between 2015 and 2019, 3.8%. There's never been a lower, never been a lower period. Never been a lower period since 1945. And I, I, I like to look at that same website that um, Veronica was looking at. She said SQL earlier in the episode, but not SQM. Um, but um, on the total listing, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, oh, did I? Sorry. <laughs> What's interesting, because I've just played around with it with lots of different um, postcodes, you know, and what's, I, and I agree with what Veronica was saying is that, you know, the under 30 day listings, yeah, I mean, that's interesting, but what's interesting is what doesn't sell, right? How many properties are sitting on the market more than a month, more than two months, more than three months, more than six months? And that's what SQM shows. And all the suburbs I was looking at, the longer term listings are starting to evaporate. And the, especially the 60 or 90 day listings are really down. So it's showing that yet we're absorbing the new stock 
and we're actually buying the stuff that people haven't wanted to buy for a few months. And that's um, and if you look at the 2018-2019 downturn, which was driven by the credit crisis, right, and the Royal Commission, and Sydney prices, uh, we're not talking Sydney here, but you know, Sydney prices fell 15%. Um, you absolutely saw listings way higher than where they are over the last 12 months. Um, and I think it's really interesting to because to, that was a really fearful environment and then when more positive came into the market you know in labor lost the election if that's positive or negative for some people um apra changed the assessment rates they had rate cuts and bang you got competition on tight listings and in that 2019 late 2019 period prices rose good 15 percent. i would say it's all it's it was extremely fast bounce back my worry in this situation is we're getting price increases on ridiculously low in, um listings after a 4% increase in rates and a 40% reduction in borrowing capacities, what happens if that starts to flip the other way, right? Like what happens if rates start getting cut under really low listings? Um, what happens if borrowing capacity starts to shoot up because APRA come in and say, well, I'm going to cut the assessment rate. Um, and I think, and even though 2019 prices jumped a lot, but that was on a lot more listings. What would happen if it's we're going into a potential more positive property market? You know, prices are stable. We're not worried about inflation as much anymore, but we're going on a ridiculously low number of listings that are getting eaten up. And yeah, that can only lead to one thing, unfortunately, for, for people who want to buy who haven't bought. It's actually an interesting perspective, that one, because I hadn't actually um, really thought about the fact that, yes, well, I have thought about it, but not in that way. Um, you know, I, I track uh, back talking about Sydney. We've had a bit of feedback recently um, that we're too Sydney centric, and so apologies there. But I guess in terms of a actual personal examples, are often going to be Sydney because we are based in Sydney. Well, Chris and I are, but obviously here we've asked Kent to focus on the research in other areas so that we don't forget that a lot of our listeners are from other areas, but. Certainly when we talk about Sydney, and I talked to buyers agents and sales agents even in Melbourne, and very, very similar pattern happened in Melbourne. I talked to Megan Wells uh, about Brisbane. It's very different patterns. Um, Brisbane had basically had 10 years between, actually more than that, between nearly 20 years between booms. She talks about the big boom in 2002 and then again in 2021. Um, so, so different uh, cities do behave differently, although Sydney and Melbourne are, are quite in tandem. Their numbers may differ in terms of the magnitude, but but you know the patterns are very similar. Um, and certainly, when we're dealing with uh, like a really constrained market back, like we had the middle of 2017, right through the middle of 2019. Those properties really did swell up, those those long listings. There's no doubt about it. You can see it in that chart that we're talking about there, and it was difficult to sell, and listings were also drying up. New listings were drying up. This is where it's interesting what you're talking about, Kent, looking at the, the average listings versus new because the market was shit and yet listings were drying up purely because people knew they weren't going to get their price. You know, so so this idea about forced listings is what's causing price falls. You, know, you still hear that and it's like actually it doesn't actually work that way. Um, and yet here we are. I've been tracking uh, clearance rates over the last, say, I think about – six weeks so we're recording this mid-august um so from the beginning of july clearance rates in sydney have been around about that 70 percent mark which is just 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 into uh seller's market territory and and uh listings numbers of new listings that is for new new properties coming on to auction um have been steadily and steeply rising in that time but the actual clearance rate has been holding and holding quite firm. So, yeah, I mean, I think I've never really thought then, well, what about when interest rates fall and people's borrowing capacity starts improving? Then, yeah, what does that mean? It's a bit of a coiled spring. Yeah, and I just, um, you know, to not a make scary. it Sydney-centric, I did go to Melbourne just here and just played around with it. And so if you look at places like Hampton, you know, a decent-sized suburb in terms of land area, um, and you look at what their listings were in 2018 over 30 days i'm not that too worried about under 30 days because that stuff may just get absorbed um but the stuff that's over 30 days it was like 170 listings versus 80. so you can see the stuff on the market that's over 30 days is double what it was back in 2018 2019. 
So it's Bayside, right? Bayside SA3? Yeah, that'd be an interesting way to look at it for you, Kent. I'm probably looking at one of your competitors, I guess, SQM. But um, <laughs> Yeah, that's all right. So I'm looking at it, at, at, and I'm I'm looking at inventory for the area. It's 1.88. It's just chronically low. And its high point was last December at 2.77. It's just been crawling down since. Um, so listings are way down. Like the listings for that area was 243 back in November. That's just fallen down. That's down to 138 average listings now. So, you know, and we've seen prices starting to tick up. I think they got down to their lowest at 1.89 million back in December. That's climbing up to about 1.93 now. So, um, it's being driven by this extraordinarily low supply. So let's have a bit of a look at Perth because, um, you know, Perth is a bit of a funny city. It had a really crap 10 years and then had a bit of growth in 2021 like everyone else and um, prices are, I think the growth has slowed down from memory. Last time I looked at some national figures. So what are we looking at there in terms of inventory because – um, it's a very different market to the eastern states. I mean, like for instance, it's not an auction market at all. Um, so you've got just property selling private treaty over in Perth. Tell us. Yeah, a lot of the buyers agents have been telling me that's this has been where they've been parked for the last year. So there's been a, a an influx of a lot of investors being you know parked over there. Um, and and I think looking back, and when you say part, you mean that that's just they're basically putting all their clients in, all, all their clients moving into oh. there. So they were in South Australia, Adelaide, and then they've all moved over. All sorry, I'll rephrase that. Uh, a lot of the ones I'm talking to have, have you know been very focused on on Perth. Do you have off the top of your? I was talking to somebody who's who's involved in the um, sort of you know lead generation space, and. He, he, look, he didn't give me any numbers, but he said, oh, I just got this insight into how the numbers of people that are dealing, um, been buying through some, like a handful of buyers agents that do huge numbers. Now, I don't know what he means by huge numbers, but I think he was shocked at the potential to move some markets. And a lot of individual buyers agents would say, oh, I don't have that power, you know, my client list isn't that big. Um, but I think if everyone's seeing you from the same hymn sheet, then perhaps there is that potential. Um, are you? What sort of numbers are you talking about? That's interesting. Little, um, when I first started Suburb Trends, a very wealthy investor was lined up to buy into the company on the condition that I put my thumb on the scale for that purpose, for that reason. <laughs> Needless to say, I, I didn't take that money. So it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Okay. So because, you know, yes, so I guess that's where you have to understand fundamentals of property markets and if or if there's a massive proportion of investors buying into it. We talked earlier, investors don't push up prices on an individual property, but if you've got a lot moving into an area that are not from that area, they're not owner-occupiers, there is very little owner-occupied demand, then that is going to move prices. And also, particularly if they're buying from interstate and they don't know any better. Look, look at the inventory levels we're talking about. Some of these areas don't have a lot of stock, so it only takes one or two extra buyers. I mean, it's the thing that's driven most of the excessive price growth outside of the Sydney, Melbourne area, especially in the COVID exodus. Look at what happened in Northern Rivers. Look at what happened down the south coast. Yeah, but that's not really investor dollars, is it? Like no, Northern Rivers and, demand. say, the Southern it's Highlands. It's extrinsic demand. It's It's not... You know, from the local area, it's not local it's not buyers, natural, it's not local budgets. Yeah. Um, so, and and these are areas that are, especially if they're removed from the capital cities, they don't have the same volume of trade. So, as soon as you absorb that excess stock, it takes a lot longer for it to come back online. So that's why these areas have suffered. These regional areas have suffered so much. Sorry, we jump jump ship. We're talking about Perth. Um, look, in terms of the forecast, I'm looking at uh, in the next three months on average across the areas that I've analysed about a five percent drop. Now, 
that's the average there. Um, term, but you, you asked specifically about inventory. So I'll just have a quick look. So, you know, I'll, I'll pick on a well, few Well, listings, areas. remember? Listings. Yeah, I think, but you did ask the question. You, 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 you wanted to know a little bit about inventory as well. They're still quite low. So, so you know, there is only one area, Melville, Melville, um, that's got a little bit higher inventory. It's about 4.3 months, but, um, you know, that's still kind of low, right? You know, so, yeah, 4.3. The rest of them are all below three. And compared to compared to when? That's just current inventory level. Yeah. So that's current inventory. and that, the, But inventory levels have been dropped. They have dropped. So this, there's demand coming in now. So we're, we're talking month on month, a one-month drop in inventory everywhere, pretty much inventory dropping. I think that the real takeaway with this is that, you know, the reason we're talking a lot about listings and inventory is that it's supply, right? It's not how many, like, they're... Look at the core logic report here. It's 11 million dwellings. It's 11.0, right? It's been 10, uh, 10 million for quite a while. We're up to 11 million, right? And, um, you know, and that doesn't mean there's 11 million properties to buy, right? There's probably 150,000 properties on the market right now to buy. So, whereas in the past, it might have been 250 or 300. And, you know, it's, and that's really the supply is, is how many properties can you actually buy right now and ridiculously tight across our whole country. And, um, and so while we're potentially seeing this reduction in demand, just because it's so tight on listings, that the demand that is sticking around is still keen to pay current prices, even under high interest rates. Um, and, you know, people aren't wanting to upgrade. There's nothing in encouraging people to go and, you know, upgrade their home when they've got to pay higher interest rates or, you know, et cetera. And so I think we're just going to have to really track this over the next six months because, you know, if you're worried about price falls, well, that's, potentially proven that low listings is going to hold prices which it sort of has but my worry is probably on the other side now is that could we see a bit of a kick where you know the buyers that have got the buying capacity the buyers that are doing well financially they're the ones who could very quickly move prices back up and um the buyer that should be able to buy maybe in the past maybe they had decent borrowing capacities i feel like they're going to get pushed out really quick because they're not going to be able to compete if prices move another five or ten percent they're blown they're already spending all their budget um and so I can see some pain for buyers that have got briefs that are very close to what current prices are. Um, and because if we start to see the the rates don't have to get cut for buyers to factor them in. If if there's a consensus view that rates are now not going up anymore, which will probably happen if rates don't go up for another three or two or three months. But if you know CBA came out this week and said rate cuts are one percent next year, all the other banks, etc. If that starts to flood the front pages. Buyers will quickly factor into their decisions. Actually, you know what? We've got no fear here. Rates are going down 1% next year. Let's get in. And so before rates even get cut, you're going to see potentially even further price growth if if that's what happens. So because it's very low listings, and then they'll be FOMO, they'll miss out, um, and low listings can see quite price rises quite fast. So I think it's a really interesting conversation. We should keep tracking it rather than, you know, listeners might think we're going on about these listings so much, but... It's so important to track it because that's really the the you know the canary in the coal mine. If listings really increase, which is what all the media were saying last month, which we realised wasn't the case, um, then you'll start to see some price rises, and the property bears will be loving it. But that's not what we're seeing, right? We're seeing very tight listings, if not getting. We just tighter. don't have the new stock supply. Yeah. We've got population growth, no new stock supply. So, and I don't want the. I, I don't think it's healthy anymore. I'm starting to sway here. I don't want. Ever, never ending price increase. I, you know, I'm I'm at a different in a different camp now because I'm thinking this is creating societal issues that I'm not happy with. So that's just I'm, okay. I'm coming from a very different angle here, but I think prices have gotten to a point where it's damaging, and to keep on growing like that, it's not a good story. But I'm just talking to the truth, and I do think Chris, everything you said is going to happen. Yeah, and as long as prices go up in New Lambton, then Kent's okay. That's that's probably the the, uh, the catch here. Uh, look, it's all relative. It's all relative. That's why I view it. You know, it's, it's yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, hey, they could halve. It all depends what you're going to do with the money. If it halves, <laughs> if it halves everywhere, I don't care. I'll go and move into something that's, yeah. Oh, unless you've got a huge, a huge mortgage because that doesn't halve. 
price of your property halves. It doesn't. It, your commensurate debt doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't adjust accordingly. But I do think that I know. I, I actually agree with you, Ken. I think that um, you know the the all the rhetoric at the moment is around the supply and the rental side of things. Um, you know, we used to have this big affordability debate about first home buyers, and now it's affordability around renting, and we've forgotten about first home buyers again. But um, but you know, and at the end of the day, there's not a lot of sympathy for first home buyers when some people can't rent for their family. You know what I mean? So the, the first home buyers have sort of dropped dropped down the pecking order a little bit. Um, but I do agree with you, Kent, that um, it's it it will cause problems. Inequality and and growing inequity does cause problems. Look at the French Revolution. Um, it's, it's exactly like it's all all the stars align. It looks exactly like the same period. You know, and and we're going to be telling <laughs> first home buyers. And renters to eat brioche. <laughs> yes, let them eat cake. So, um, okay, so that's um, – do you have a link for this report on your website? Because we could always uh, pop that into the show notes. Yeah, look, everything's just on the home page. You can find – kind of the website's just devoted to kind of one big blog now. So you can just come in and find one the blog post. Blog. With the, yeah, lots of blog posts there. Um, I've been using – that nice photo of you on the back of it i'm just <laughs> chat gpt i'm going nuts i'm using it for the analysis and getting it to help me write content so a lot of the i'm i'm, I'm producing one or two big posts a day now now we actually interviewed uh luke metcalf a few weeks back about ai uh in the property space and we've spoken to you about it in the past as well and just before we wrap this episode up um obviously there's something that you're working with but can we put a little caution in there? Because you are, it's all about the questions you ask though, isn't it, Kent? I mean, you're you are creating models. You're not just going, oh, where, you don't just literally type in there saying, oh, you know, where's inventory going to fall the most in Australia? And I just want to clarify that that's not what you're doing. Oh, no, no, no. I I, I use it as a- No, I no, just, no. It's a tool. It's a tool. And I, what I do is I create- It's a number crunching tool for you, right? <laughs> and And I give it prompts- that have 25 years of nerd mashed with my data sets. So it's got effectively, you know, a thousand words in the prompt. It's saying, this is how you interpret. This is how you input. This is how you read it. This is how you write to it. And then what I do is I throw in the data set. So the data that it's using, clearly I'm telling it, you must only use the data I'm giving you. Then it just works as a script writer. A, a, it's a journalist in the corner or up doing heavy lifting, uh, doing the st statistics crunching. I'm not asking it to produce data. I'm asking it to crunch and write about stuff. Which is, I really wanted just to bring that up because otherwise, and also there are, there's different versions of ChatGPT. I mean, you're, you're using ChatGPT4, I'm presuming. And Code Interpreter. So I've just, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a plug in for something I've done that's awesome. What we've done is we've, do, we do an AI match of 50 off market match properties when someone sells a property, right? And we, so we match it based on price and distance and owned for 10 years. And then what we do is we pull those 50 back. And then we feed them into ChatGPT and we say, write a personalised letter to each of those 50. And then with the, the ChatGPT4 and Code Interpreter, it generates 50 letters in a Word document that you can go click and print. So you can sell a property, have 50 letters done in 10, 10 20 seconds, and then hand, have them hand-delivered within an hour of selling your property. Mind-blowing. Yes, you're offering to sales agents. Which That's to real estate agents, yes. Yeah, to their prospecting. But your use of the word off-market and the general way in which we use the word off-market is different. You're basically saying 50 properties that are not currently on the market as opposed to 50 properties that that are off-market, nudge, nudge, wink, nudge, wink, nudge, say wink. no more. You no, can buy this one if you give me 100 grand more than it's worth. No, no, these these are the types of properties that you should be knocking on the door or doing a letterbox drop to to say, I want to give you an appraisal. You should get an appraisal because I've just sold a property just like yours and you should be rather interested in this sale. Yeah, without them having to do all the work to to find the sale, to write the letter, to, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. And that's the magic of, ch that's these chat GPT. That's what it does. It does all that heavy lifting stuff. So as, as the saying goes, it's not AI taking your job. 
it's the person who's embracing AI and making full use of it who is going to take your job. Yeah. So, and and look, I just wanted to really home, just really hammer at home that you're not, and, and if anyone just thinks they're going to jump into ChatGPT and go, right, well, I want to know where should I buy an investment property, I've plugged some questions in and I've been horrified at what comes back because garbage in, garbage out, right? Whereas what you're doing is asking it to interpret your data with the parameters and the instructions that you've given it. Um, and, and I think that that's a really big distinction because I don't want people going, oh, well, whatever Kent does, I can do that now. They don't have your property smarts. They, they don't have your insights and your experience to be able to know um, also whether it's garbage, you know. Yeah, I'm not using it for its brain. I'm using it for its brawn. Got it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kent. And um, yeah, I think it's interesting to keep tracking these listings. So obviously, what are we talking about next month, Kent? There's some going with AI. We um, did a report on, isn't that right? Or what are we talking about? Ooh, yeah, well, I did a report that's now a couple of months old. What I did was I analysed um, the suburbs that I thought were going to be most impacted by AI. Which, you know, we were going to do this month, but the reason we sort of switched is because the listings data is coming out saying, new listings data has come, has come out saying that, you know, spring's going to be pretty hot. So I thought this was quite topical, but how about we sort of go back to what we were originally going to do and we can do yeah, that next month. And I could even refresh it. I could refresh it because the analysis was based on the 18 different codes for different, you know, the industries of employment. Uh, and then the percentage uh, percentage improvement in, in terms of productivity against each of those 18 categories. Uh, what I might do is reprocess that because I've already got all the numbers set up and um, effectively it's it's the, the number of people employed per suburb in each of those 18 categories times a percentage. I just need to update that percentage with a refresh. There you go. And AI is going to come back and help you tell tell us what jobs AI is going to steal. Excellent. Yes, yes. You can't word it like that. It won't. You can't tell it. it. Won't play. It won't tell you the doomsday stuff. You have to trick it and say, "How much is? What's the productivity gain for this industry?" <laughs> and then know how to interpret it. That sounds good. Okay, so that'll be a November episode. We look forward to that chat. Thanks so much. And um, yeah, been great chatting once again. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.